Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. another fascinating guest to share his captivating research of Nick Parisi is our return guest he is the author of Rod Serling his life work and imagination he is the president of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation and the producer of Serling Fest which will be held in Binghamton New York August 12th through the 14th um, it's worth it. it take the family go it's a fantastic time uh, you can um, go to rodsterling.com for more details and if that's not enough we have Miss Multimedia Sensation Solaris Blue Raven uh, co-hosting with me um she loves this topic and you know it's usually like the last sunday of the month uh after two action-packed shows on friday and saturday nights she and barbara have their lengthy informative discussions about all kinds of spiritual issues so that that's always worth tuning into as well. So, hi Solaris, hi Nick, how are you two tonight? Doing great, Mark. Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Mark, and thank you for the intro. And yes, Nick, I'm excited to talk to you tonight as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Same here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You two have been, or, or Nick's been a guest with Solaris. And uh, Nikki just had a great appearance with uh, Richard Sirrett the other night. That was 
uh, yeah, Richard has a great way of bringing out all those like you know, little nuances about the author that it really helps you to get to understand the topic or the biography. And I thought you two had a great discussion. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. He, it really was. It was a great, great talk. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, what, let's start off with, um, who were who the guest speakers uh, this year? What are some of the activities? Uh, what are the uh, locations around town where uh, this year's festivities will be taking place? Yeah, well, uh, first thing I guess is, is just to, if I give people the website, the direct website for, for the fest is, is uh, throwingfest2022.com. Uh, com, and if you go there, you'll see the whole schedule for uh, for, the, for the event. But it's going to be three, uh, basically three days: Friday, Saturday, Sunday, August twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth, at three different locations in Binghamton. So this is kind of unusual for you know for this type of event for a convention or that type of thing. Normally, you're in you know just a hotel and everything takes place in one place, but we are, what we're going to be doing is Friday night from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock, so we're basically going to be starting at 7 o'clock. From 7 to 10, we're uh, going to be at the Double Tree Hotel in Binghamton. It's on uh, Washington Street. I was I on Water Street. I'm sorry, Water Street in Binghamton. And um, we're going to be having uh, our guests that night will be uh, well, a duo of people called, they call themselves Everywhere Philosophy. And they were at last year's Sterling Fest, and they they really went over really really well. They they do a, a this will sound dry if I say it, but they do a discussion, an interactive discussion, about the philosophy of the Twilight Zone, and, and it's not anything but dry. It's, it's a fun uh, thing that they do. And this year they're going to be basing it on one particular Twilight Zone episode, um, an episode called "The World the World of His Own" from the first season. Uh, so it's going to be about the philosophical questions and concepts that are suggested by that episode. So they're going to be our first guests on Friday night. After them, we're going to have a Rod Sterling video marathon. And what it's going to be is it's not going to be Twilight Zone. It's going to be rare things that people have not seen, a couple of really rare interviews with Rod that are not generally available, uh, and some other rarer, more unusual appearances from Rod and other things like you know, acting appearances, comedy appearances, things like that that he did. So we're putting that together still now, actually. And but that's going to be that's going to take the rest three hour, basically seven to ten, maybe even seven to eleven. Basically, we could say as long as we want, really. Uh, that'll be Friday night. But then Saturday is really the the main Sterling Fest event. Saturday we're at the Forum Theater in Binghamton. That is on Washington Street, and that uh, we're going to be there all day, nine a.m. till ten p.m. And our guests this year are Mark Vickery, the author of The Twilight Zone Companion. He probably needs no introduction. He was with us last year, and it was, it was actually his first trip to Binghamton, and he, um, he really enjoyed himself, so we're really, really happy that he decided to come back. And Sterling, of course, will be with us, Rod's uh, youngest daughter and the author of As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Sterling. She will be with us. Uh, I will be there, obviously. I'll be emceeing most of the, most of the events. Uh, Mark DeWidziak will be there. Mark is the author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone, as well as lots of other things. He's working on a biography of Edgar Allan Poe right now, and actually I think he's finished it. I think it's coming out fairly soon. 
so he'll be with us. Uh, Mark Olshaker, who is the co-author of the Mindhunter books, which were uh, turned into a Netflix series. Uh, he was uh, he knew Rod, and uh, he was a you know Rod was a mentor to Mark. So uh, so Mark will be there and uh, sharing his insights on on his friend on on you know on Rod Sterling. And uh, who else will be there? Martin Grams is supposed to be with us. Uh, this will be the first time I'm announcing this, but Martin actually is not going to be able to make it, so I'm going to have to uh, oh. make that clear to everybody. Yeah, Mark won't, uh, Martin won't be able to make it. He had, he was always a little bit iffy about whether he could make it. Um, he has a business that he's opening, and so like the whole month of August he's going to be wrapped up in that. So uh, so he had to pull out. He actually just sent me an email yesterday. So, um, so he will not be able to, uh, to make it, but um, Tony Alberella will be with us. He is the editor and author of the uh, Timeless as Infinity Rod Sterling script books, as well as a few other things. Uh, Amy Boyle Johnson should be with us. She is the author of Unknown Sterling. And we will also have, this year, we're going to have an artist, uh, Cortland Hull, will be with us. He is an artist who did all of the artwork that is on the carousel all of the Twilight Zone artwork that's on the carousel in Recreation Park in Binghamton, he did that artwork. So he's going to have his prints. He'll be signing and selling his prints there. And last but not least, we're going to have a filmmaker named Jonathan Napolitano. He will be with us. And he is a director of a documentary called The Carousel. And it's about that carousel and also about Cortland Hull's uh, artwork for it, the process that he went through to, to create the artwork for that ca- for the carousel. So we're going to be screening the carousel and uh, have a chat with those two guys, and uh, they will be with us the whole the whole weekend. And that's basically Saturday. And Sunday we will be at Recreation Park in Binghamton for somewhat a uh, somewhat informal get together. We're just going to meet at Recreation Park at 10 a.m. and we'll have the bandstand to ourselves, and we will have uh, maybe some speakers there. We'll have a microphone set up and a little little amplifier, and we may have some speakers there. But basically, it's going to be just like a picnic, just getting together and being able to hang out with, with uh, everybody who has attended the event. So, so that's uh, pretty much the whole thing, and it's, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. It's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a fun time. Okay. Um, when you know, we've had a, a few of the people you mentioned as guests uh, on, on Nightlight, um, more, you know, Mark Olshaker it just really it impresses me with the his books. He's co-authored with John Douglas. Um, you know, the pioneer of uh, profiling. Uh, Mark Dweziak just. Uh, has so many really uh, fascinating books on a variety of topics, uh, Cole Shack and Columbo, uh, you know, Shawshank Redemption and it, its legacy. Um, Nick, you have a fantastic biography as well, you know, if you just look at uh, you know Martin Graham's um, uh, you know Twilight Zone book, uh, you know, it just gives you all, all kinds of uh, information about 
of the production of each episode. Uh, you know, it's a very helpful uh, book to understand uh, the series. Um, if you look at all these authors, um, is is there something about Rod or the Twilight Zone that nurtured this limitless creativity? Well, I think that, you know, well, I think the Twilight Zone, first of all, is, you know, it's, I think the people who are drawn to that type of entertainment, that type of show, are generally creative people uh, to begin with. And I think that, you know, a show like The Twilight Zone that really expands your imagination and, and asks you to consider possibilities and things that you may not have otherwise considered is bound to, uh, you know, inspire you to be creative, you know, and... So I think that is that's the case for a lot of these people. I mean, you know, not even just the people you've mentioned, but Rod Sterling and his wives when I've inspired so many uh, successful creative people. I mean, just go down the mm-hmm. list from from Steven Spielberg to you know to Jordan Peele to M Night Shyamalan to you know I mean on and on and on. You know, so uh, the Twilight Zone certainly inspired all of these people. So the people you're talking about are people who kind of took it a step further and were not only inspired by the Twilight Zone, but were also inspired by Rod himself. Uh, as I mentioned, Mark, uh, Mark Olshaker knew Rod and, and uh, you know, was, Rod was really a mentor of Mark and, and rubbed off on Mark as far as, you know, a lot of his, um, his philosophies and things like that. So, so Mark took a lot of what Rod said to heart and I'm sure it has, you know, influenced him in a whole lot of ways. So yeah, Rod and the Twilight Zone together have been a, a, a wellspring of, of you know of inspiration mm-hmm. for lots and lots of people. Okay, um, so Solaris, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, actually, I do have a question, and really a pleasure to have um, be part of this discussion here. I was going to ask you a little bit about the supernatural essence to the series itself. I know I, I've mm-hmm. always loved the, the Twilight Zone, and I like the energetic associated with the – it's supernatural to me to some degree. Do, do you think Rod Serling was haunted by supernatural forces, or where do you think this, this energetic came from? Uh, well, no, I certainly don't think he was haunted. Um, I think just, he was just interested. He was – he would always say that he was, uh, you know, when he, especially when it came to the later series that he did, Night Gallery, uh, which was much more um, dark and much more horror-oriented and much more, um, uh, you know, and much more occult than, than the Twilight Zone was. He would always say, "I'm not, in a, I'm not a practitioner of the occult. I'm an aficionado. I, I'm, I'm, some, I'm interested in it. I, I like to read it." So he would read, you know, a Drowned Poe, and he would read. Uh, you know, Lovecraft, and he loved he loved that genre. So he loved uh, the strange, and he loved the unusual. So that's that's really where it came from, just from an interest in it. And he was able to translate, you know, that interest into into the Twilight Zone, and then later into Night Gallery. Mhm, that's excellent. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Mark. Oh, okay. Yeah, just just chime in whenever you have a question. Okay. I, it, it, and uh, you know, just to follow up with uh, Solaris's supernatural question, um, the hunt was 
on MeTV last night. And mm-hmm. uh, okay, uh, you know, I was just I was sitting there uh, watching. I was you know, kind of thinking, okay, how, how can I work this into tonight's discussion? And it, I guess you know, if we're talking about supernatural, I, you know, I guess uh, uh, you know, an afterlife really isn't uh, a. Uh, Variation from uh, that topic, uh, but with episodes like the hunt, um, death's head revisited, or even uh, what's one with uh, Sebastian Cabot? Uh, that's a nice place to visit, I believe. Uh, okay, okay. If we just kind of look at those th- three examples um i th- i think those are are three episodes uh three fantastic episodes that depict um various aspects of the afterlife what uh, was Rod's upbringing, or you know, what was his interest in um, exploring topics of uh, dualities of mm-hmm. uh, heaven? Uh, you, know, you do uh, get that with the uh, the dog at. W- at the uh, the two stops at the hunt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well. 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 Yeah. The, the hunt specifically was actually written by uh, Earl Ham uh, Earl Hamner. So so that mm-hmm. actually was not a sermon, but but your point is well taken because it's similar to the other episodes you mentioned and similar to Rod's take on on that 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 topic basically, and that's that. Well, you know, Rod was. Uh, he was born to a Jewish family. The Sterlings are a Jewish family, so he had Jewish heritage. Um, they were not particularly religious. He, they were never, I mean, he wasn't bar mitzvahed. They didn't regularly go to go to temple. Um, so he was, uh, they called themselves uh, Reformed Jews. You know, Reformed Jewish is, is more of a liberal uh, faith. And later in life, Rod became a Unitarian. So Unitarians are are by definition, it's a liberal faith that it's accepting of all faiths or no faith, you know, so, so it's a very wide-ranging uh, church, the Unitarian Church. So, so Rod had a background in both of those religions, and, and I get into this in the, in the book to some, to some degree that, you know, I think when it came to things like heaven and hell, it, it wasn't necessarily Rod's belief it may have been but what i think it more was it was just him being a writer and it was just him using the tools that were available to him and in a fantasy context it's very it was a very useful tool to say well wouldn't it be cool if there really were guardian angels you know the two guardian angel episodes you know or Mm -hmm. what if you know what if god were a a force that we could literally bargain with and talk to like in, in praise of pip you know, when, when Jack Klugman in Praise of Pip had to beg God to take his life instead of his son's life, take, take me. 
and he does, you know. So, you know, those are the things that Rod, I think, grasped onto as a writer and just said, yeah, these are things I can use. Um, But I think also Rod was an optimistic guy. He was a hopeful guy. And I think he, deep down, he wished for, it was was wish fulfillment to some extent that I wish there is a heaven for the good people in this world. You know, I wish that, you know, I hope there's some reward for the people who did things right. And I hope, I hope there's a punishment for people who did things wrong. You know, so, so those were two, I think, hopes that he had, and they were very easy to latch on to in story form. Yeah, well, you know, with the hope for, you know, guardian angels, uh, you, you know, you contrast that with uh, Death's Head Revisited, and, you know, the more I see that, episode um uh, that would have to be one of the most uh profound uh what 22 minutes of tv that ever existed yeah i i agree it's, and you're right i think it gets to you more and more the more you the more you see it uh it's it's a a very very powerful episode. Uh, you know, for the people who may not know, what we're talking about that. Ted revisited is about a a former SS. I don't even know if you have to be former, but a former SS guard, a Nazi, who goes back to goes back to Germany to kind of uh, you know relive the glory days. He wants to go back to the to the camps and uh, and reminisce about all the all the evil things that he did. I mean, this is a real a real piece of work. This guy. And when he goes back to the camp, which of course is, is empty and it's just you know it's a, a barren you know it's just an abandoned site at this point. When he goes back there, he's haunted by the ghosts of the of the people that he tortured at the camp, and the ghosts of these people put him on trial. And and I always make the point that I think that's the, one of the more important aspects of this episode is is that or one of the more telling parts of this episode is that. You know, Rod Serling, he wanted this Nazi to be punished, obviously. You know, he goes back and these, these, you know, the concentration camp ghosts come and haunt this guy to punish him. But he made sure they gave him a trial first. You know, he was a very big believer in the rule of law and the process. And you don't, and, and he was very sensitive about um, vigilantism. You know, he did not want, the, he would never have made those, concentration camp ghosts out to be vigilantes or out for revenge. They weren't out for revenge. They were out for justice, and justice meant a trial. So they give him the trial, and that's, it's very, they make it very explicit at the end of that episode. They say, you've been judged guilty, and now you're going to get your punishment. And the punishment is that he's basically driven mad by these ghosts, and he's carried away to uh, an insane asylum. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of work, a powerful piece of work. And it's Rod Serling. It's Rod Serling at, at, at his best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to just add something, too, as well. I remember that episode. It has a a lingering essence to it in the sense of you're looking at all of his works. They have this strong message, uh, a lot of moral when it comes down to ethics. um, And you you can call it philosophy, I guess, to some degree. But why do you think he did this? It seems to me like that was the biggest thing he wanted to imprint onto his work was a message of some kind. Yeah, well, it it wasn't so much that, yeah, in the twilight of episodes that that Rod Sterling wrote, there almost always was a message but it, it was more the sense that Rod Sterling believed that that there has to be something more to to to, to my work. If, if I'm writing about, I have to write about something. 
you know, he wasn't going to just come up with a great idea for a plot and and use that. And and you know, the writers can do that, and that's that's great. But Rob believed that if you're going to do this, if you're going to be a writer, you better say something about things. So it usually started with a theme for Rod Sterling. So if you wanted to say something about the Holocaust or prejudice or conformity or whatever it may have been, whatever the issue may have been, he would start with that and then build a plot around that theme. So it would end up making a statement about one of those themes, but it was because yeah, that's just how Rod Sterling wrote. He believed that your writing had to include that. That was just part of the job. Right. Yeah, it's applied today. That's what's so interesting. It's timeless. Yeah, and I think the that's messages. part of why it's yeah, and I think and I think that's a big part of why it's timeless. I mean, of course, you know, I'm asked this all the time, you know, why does Twilight Zone survived all these years and it's still, you know, why why is it still popular? And and I think it's because of that. It's because Rob Tilling, you know, decided he demanded that the show be about something, about more than just science fiction and things, just more than sh- uh, shock value, more than scares, more than twist endings. It's about something more. And Rob Tilling gave gave us these messages. He gave us these things to think about. And we've been thinking about them for sixty years. And I don't think we'd be able to like like Mark was saying. I, you know, he's like watched uh, Death of Revisit how many times. You wouldn't be able to watch that that many times if all it was was just, you know, a twist ending at the end about, you know, some guy getting his just desserts. You know, it's 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 more than that. It's deeper than that. And that's, that's why you can watch it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Nick, you just uh, – when you were talking about Death Head Revisited uh, and, you know, the trial – shows that there's some, you know, there needs to be some type of rule, rule of law. And uh, I think we ha- have uh, almost the same uh, type of statements in um, the episode of You Drive. Is that the right is that the right uh, title? With the uh, it's, it's the grandpa from Sixteen Candles. Right, right, yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, it's called You Drive, correct? Yes. Oh, I, I, okay. Uh, um, but it, it, uh, that one's one of my favorite episodes as well. It is. They're they're uh, related by themes, and you know you, you do bring kind of uh, topic up in your book where uh, you do some comparison contrasts, like Talkie Tina and the the doll from the uh, Night Gallery episode. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I just want to, you know, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I know exactly. What you're they, they were, they were not just themes, but they were, well, they, they were themes and motifs and things like that. And Rod, Rod Sterling repeatedly uh, re-examined and revisited. You know, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so you get, you just happen to get a, a killer doll in in, uh, in two Twilight episodes. Although the one uh, Twilight, the living the Toki scene actually again was that that was not a, a Sterling, uh, that was a uh, Charles Beaumont. Um, well, Charles Beaumont's story, at least. 
But um, but yeah, so so you would get these repeated uh, themes and and even images, you know, from from show to show. Yeah, and it you know with the example that we, you know, we were just talking about with the uh, dolls um, throughout your biography of Rod, you have. Uh, several examples of where, yeah, I just say like 1959, 1960, and about 10 years later, you have Rod uh, working with the same actor or actress. Uh, it's it just really seems like he had both friends that he would want to uh reappear in one of his episodes you know, you know uh, McDowell might be about one of the best examples with um uh his, his appearance in the yeah, the Twilight Zone, Planet of the Apes, and uh, uh, was it the uh, first uh, the the pilot episode for Night Gallery? Yes, yeah, it was in the first story of the pilot movie. Yes. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, I I've always liked that. Uh, just just that you, you can see characters develop over or, or the actors develop over time these I, I'm sure you know, there had to be some kind of friendship there did, did you find anything out about well, I, Roddy McDowell? Not, no not about him specifically but I can tell you I mean, well, one thing is that the first thing is that when it comes to television especially in those days you will see you know certain actors show up everywhere they're ubiquitous you know they're, they're on mm-hmm. every show, you know, the certain actors that just keep popping up everywhere. Um, so that is, that was part of it. But, but on Twilight Zone, you know, Rod Sterling had all the creative control in the world. So he, he hired these people. So absolutely he had certain favorite actors, not even not necessarily friends, or although I'm sure they were friends, but um, he had certain actors that he really liked. And, that, and those were the people he would search out for, for certain things. And I mean, the two examples from Twilight Zone that are probably most, uh, most obvious would be Art Carney. Um, he was uh, Art Carney and Jack Klugman were probably Rod Sterling's two favorite actors. And Jack Klugman starred in four Twilight Zone episodes. Art Carney starred in one. Um, but um, strangely enough, or ironically, or whatever the word is, um, one of the episodes that Jack Klugman starred in, in Praise of Tip, I mentioned earlier, Art Carney mm-hmm. was Rod Sterling's first choice for that episode. So, um, so yeah, so he had he had certain actors that he really. Uh, newer dependable, you know, that he, he said, these guys are going to get the job done, you know, and I, and I like these guys and that. So they, those were a couple of them and they just happened to show up, you know, again, later, uh, later in his career. I mean, yeah, there are certain actors from Twilight Zone that show up in some of Rod Sterling's feature films, uh, you know, The Man, um, The Man is one where um, uh, Kevin McCarthy is in The Man, uh, Burgess Meredith is in The Man. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Twilight Zone actors that show up in that movie, you know, so, so it just, um, and and Rod didn't have any creative control on that as far as casting goes, but it just 
just so happened that these guys showed up. So, but yeah, I think part of it was luck, and part of it was uh, part of it was yeah, these were guys that Brad liked, and he was going to give them every opportunity to, to to have a part in his his show. Okay, um, yeah, th- thanks for delving into that. It, 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 it's I I think that's I I just like you know like you know I've talked about that on other shows like uh, when different bands like uh, you would know that uh, you know you know they collaborate and you know it might be uncredited but. Uh, it's just interesting to see when something clicks, they uh, they stay to, stay together. And yeah, you don't don't yeah don't if it's not broke don't 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 fix it. You know, they, yeah, if it works, go with it. Yeah, yeah, again, yeah. And and, and you know, Simon Oakland. Um, yeah, you know, makes a couple appearances, and uh, and when you were talking with uh, Richard the other night, uh, you were talking about uh, Bernard Herman uh, wrote the music, and you know, with uh, Simon Oakland and Bernard Herman, uh, you know, Vera Miles would be appearing in episode. Um, you have uh, parts of that cast of uh, Psycho uh, working with Rod what, uh, just a year or two later, uh, just coming right off the heels of one of the best horror movies ever made. Yeah, well, it was a, it was a, it was a good time. <laughs> Some of it was good timing, you know. Uh... You know, for Rod, uh, in a lot of ways, but yeah, so you had you had a lot of good things going on, and then you had a lot of good actors doing this doing this stuff. Okay. With I have a question here oh, for a second, if I can interject okay. at the same. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I'm gonna. Uh, can you explain a little bit on the Planet of the Apes in regards to Rod Serling writing the ending of the script, and, and what inspired him to do that? Yeah, uh, sure. I, you know, I, I dedicate a chapter in my book to the Planet of the Apes because that's one of the. I mean, there's been so much uh, misinformation about Planet of the Apes and, and Rod, particularly Rod Serling's involvement in Planet of the Apes over the years. That you know, I felt like I had to set some of that record straight. And you know, the, the Rod Rod was the first writer on Planet of the Apes. Rod Rod was involved with the Planet of the Apes script very very early on um, when a a, a company called King Brothers Productions had, I guess, gotten a, um, a uh, you know, they got the rights to, to, to film it. So I don't know if there's a word for the, the speculative rights, basically, to, to do it. And they sent him the book. They sent the, the novel to Rod and said, you know, can you, can you do something with this? And true to form, Rod started working on it, like, immediately and banged out a couple of drafts of the script uh, for King Brothers. And then King Brothers fell by the wayside, and the, and the project was picked up by uh, – Arthur Jacobs, Zapjack Productions, Arthur Jacobs, who would eventually produce the film, and he kept Rod on, and he, he basically rehired Rod to, to do the script. So, so then for Arthur Jacobs, Rod wrote several drafts of the script, um, several drafts and revisions, and in 
pretty early on, Rod came up with that ending of the, the twist ending of the fact that they, these astronauts had been on Earth the whole time and they didn't realize it and they discovered the Statue of Liberty. Uh, that was something that Rod came up with with Arthur Jacobs. It was kind of a collaborative thing, and Rod obviously wrote it. And uh, it was in, again, one of his early drafts of the script. And it happened to be very similar to a twist ending in one of the Twilight Zone episodes called, called I Shot an Arrow into the Air. In fact, it's basically the same ending. Mm-hmm. And, and I shot an arrow into mm-hmm. the air. There's three astronauts who believe they crash-landed on an asteroid or, or a moon. And they're in the desert, and they're dying of thirst, and they, one of them ends up killing the other two for their water, and the one who survives who killed the other two for their water, he finally makes it to a certain spot and realizes he's six miles away from Nevada. He's been in the Nevada desert the whole time. They've been on Earth, and he didn't real, they didn't realize it. He killed his two shipmates for their water basically for no reason. And, and so, so Rod did recycle that idea into Planet of the Apes, and then what ended up happening was the it's kind of a long story, which is why I had to take the whole chapter for it. But basically, the movie didn't sell. They they could not get a a studio to produce the movie. It was just it was seen as too risky, too expensive, and they eventually decided to pare down the script down to a uh, a prehistoric kind of setting where they could film in deserts and and the apes could be on horseback and and they wouldn't need too many huge futuristic sets. And that's when they decided that they would get somebody else to come in and rewrite the script. So, so Michael Wilson came in and rewrote almost all of the dialogue, but kept Rod's basic structure of the movie and certainly kept the ending. And they ended up sharing screen credit on the on the film. So it's a, it's a screenplay by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling. Very good. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate that. Sure. I do get yeah. confused. Well, I... Yeah, just uh, just to follow up with Solaris's question, um, didn't realize it until going through your uh, chapter twenty one that Rod started working on Planet of the Apes in. Uh, at the very end of 1963, so he he's pretty yeah. much going from the end uh, as the Twilight Zone uh, comes to an end. He's getting into uh, Planet of the Apes, which isn't going to actually premiere for what another five or six years. Yeah, yeah, it came out in '69, I think. So yeah, yeah. It took a while it, to get that movie made. But it, yeah, you, uh, I I didn't realize that. And then you know, somewhere it, while working on Planet of the Apes, he has um, Seven Days in May going on as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 really pretty amazing the amount of the amount of work that Rod Serling was capable of. Uh, he was. Uh, he was always working on multiple projects at the same time, and uh, and and he and it's amazing how he was able to do it and still keep the quality of so much of it at a high level. Uh, because you, it's exactly, he's on the seven days of May is likely his best screenplay they ever wrote, and then actually we'll be screening that at Sterling Fest. We're going to be ending our Sterling Fest Saturday, 
uh, with the screening of Seven Days in May. Um, but yeah, so he he in the middle of in the in between the third and fourth seasons of the Twilight Zone. That's when Rod actually decided he would take a break from the Twilight Zone. He the show was technically canceled at that point. He went back to teach at his alma mater, Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and he went back to teach, but at the same time, he was writing Seven Days in May at this point. So he wrote Seven Days in May while he was kind of almost on a sabbatical from Twilight Zone, and uh, that came out and got very, very good reviews, and it's a, it's a classic movie. And, yeah, and he was working on the initial draft of Planet of the Apes at the same time, and then, uh, you know, and then he knew, he also knew that the Twilight Zone was going to come back, and it ended up coming back as an hour-long show, and he wrote, uh, I think, seven of the uh, fourth season episodes, I believe. So, so he, the, the production level was just amazing how much he was able to produce. You know, just two, those uh, two movies, Planet of the Apes and Seven Days in May, um, are just an, a, an achievement by by themselves. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. It, I mean, you're talking about one of the one of the biggest block. I mean, a block a movie that spawns one of the greatest uh, franchises in, in science fiction movie history. You know, in Planet of the Apes, and he was a big, he was a very very big part of it. Oh yeah, I, I was into all the ha, ha, having all the. Cornelius and Zero Dolls. Uh, I yeah. The, uh, then there's the short-lived TV series too. I I just love that whole thing. Just you know the makeup and you didn't no know doubt. what yeah. to expect. It was a phenomenon. Uh, I mean, it was a phenomenon. Yeah. When. People go to the, the Serling Fest. How, how much of downtown Binghamton and outlying areas uh, is still is uh, connected to uh, Rod's uh, childhood there? Uh, a lot of it, a lot of it, and and you know I, sh- I probably should have mentioned this a lot earlier, but one of the things that we're going to be doing, and and I, I mentioned that we're starting film fest starts at seven o'clock p.m. on the Friday, August twelfth, but but actually what we're also going to be doing is at five o'clock on the Friday, uh, so again the same day, August twelfth, at five o'clock on that day, we're going to be doing a fun a fundraising cocktail party. That um, Donald Lepardo, she's an assemblywoman up in upstate New York. She has put together a uh, a fundraiser for us, a cocktail party, and we're going to be specifically raising funds to get a statue of Rod Serling built and installed in Recreation Park that I've mentioned a couple of times. Now we had done a Kickstarter for this for this project last year. And uh, as you may know from, you know, Kickstarter is the way it works is it's an all-or-nothing all situation. So if you don't make your goal, that's it. You don't get the money or anything. It's just it's just a valiant effort. And that's what ours was, a valiant effort. We, we came, uh, came, up, came up short, um, but it generated a ton of interest in the project. And now I can, you know, we're going to be making an announcement at Sterling Fest on August 12th 
but I can tell you now that it basically I can tell you that it is going to happen. We are going to get a rod throwing statue in, in Recreation Park. And so that'll be one thing of Rod Sterling. That, that, that'll be a, you know, a tribute to Rod Sterling in, in his hometown. So that'll be there. And, and Recreation Park particularly, is that, that's the park that Rod played in when he was a kid. It's, it's about, I always say it's about three blocks from his childhood home, but, I, I, but it's actually more like seven blocks from his childhood home, but they're short blocks, though. But so it's not far from where he grew up, and it's the most appropriate place to have this type of thing. So... Uh, Recreation Park is still there. The carousel is still the exact carousel that Rod rode when he was a kid. Um, so there's that. There is a, a marker outside of his high school, uh, Binghamton High School. Uh, so it says, you know, uh, graduating class 1943, Rod Serling, award-winning playwright. Uh, that's there. There are certain, you know, the certain. I mean, his boyhood home is still there and looks very much the same as it did when he was growing up there. So, um, so that you could go to see. So there are, there are a handful of landmarks like that that you can go around town and, and, and see and kind of um, kind of take in. Okay. And the uh, bus station where Vera Miles and Martin Milner were in, um, what was that? Uh, is that Mirror Image? Yes, it is. Yep. Uh, uh, that that is mentioned in the uh, dialogue that uh, one of the buses she was Vera was waiting on was stopping in Binghamton and going on to Syracuse or uh, Rochester. Yeah. That's- uh, yeah. A couple of landmarks okay. that they, yeah. So, so he uh, Rod is uh, working in into you know, a, a few of the episodes um, autobiographical material. Yes, yeah, and he would, um, yeah. So he would he would kind of name drop uh, the you know ta- you know uh, landmarks around Binghamton uh, in upstate New York. So yeah, in that particular episode, he mentions uh, they're waiting for the bus to Cortland, which is which is not uh, not far from Binghamton, and uh, and the character Martin Milner's character mentions that he came in from Syracuse, and and the cab skidded off the road, and he had to take or or the or the bus skidded off the road, and he had to take a cab from Binghamton to get the the bus station. So um, so he mentions he mentions Binghamton, they mentioned Syracuse is where Rod. Was born actually, and so so he gets all you know all three places into one episode. Um, so yeah, he would he would name drops places like that. He would name things. He would name characters after uh, neighbors in Binghamton. He would name characters after locations in Binghamton. Uh, one name that comes up a lot in the Rod Serling canon is uh, Resnick, and Resnick's was a department store in in, in Binghamton. And you'll find uh, I mean, Reckoning for Heavyweights is a character named Resnick. Um, in the feature film, I believe they changed his name to Rennick. So you'll hear Resnick, Rennick in, in lots of, in a bunch of different episodes, uh, <laughs> a bunch of different things that Rod wrote. Uh, in fact, in Where Is Everybody, the pilot episode of Twilight Zone, uh, there is a, I believe there's a, a, a van that has Resnick written on the side of it. Uh, so, so yeah, he would, he would put that stuff in all the time, uh, just to reference his, uh, his, his childhood and, his, you know, his, his hometown. So, you have a question? 
Yeah, I always have a question. <laughs> uh, let's see here. One of my favorites was The Invaders with Agnes Moorhead. I really oh, enjoyed that one. That's a classic, yeah. yeah. Isn't it great? And I was I was curious, you know, I know I've actually kind of, you know, you've had a paranormal background, but when you look at all this, um, like that one in particular, do, do you know if Broad had any UFO sightings or any, or he talked about any type of UFO connection at all in his life? Uh, no, same kind of answer. And, and yeah, and that one actually is a, uh, and I only, I only point this out because I, I know there are, there are, some, there are lots of people, and it's, and it's understandable, this, is that there are a lot of people who think Rod Serling wrote all, every episode of Twilight Zone. <laughs> and that's, it's understandable because he introduces them, and he, and, he's, you know, and he kind of, his face is on all of them. You know, but but uh, The Invaders is actually a Richard Matheson episode, so he, he wrote that one. And, and um, But when it come, came to UFOs, Rod was kind of the same, uh, he had the same thing. He was very interested in a lot of these theories. He, you know, he, later in his life, he became interested in the, the ancient astronaut theories, and uh, he liked to read about it. He was intrigued by it, um, but but he was uh, he was also a skeptic. He, he was rather the, a practical guy. He he had to have concrete evidence of something, you know, before he would say he really believed in it. And he never did. You know, he never had a sighting or anything like that that would have said, yeah, oh wow, yeah, I I I truly believe in this now. Very good. Now, it's always interesting how he can write. Well, you're right, there's a different author on that one, but it's interesting how he expanded the minds of so many people <laughs> on a mass collective scale, you know, and, and a lot of people do think that. They kind of wonder if he was involved in anything like that. But thank you for clarifying once again. It's important. Sure, sure. Well, it, it, to uh, stick with... Uh, Solaris's theme would just go with a slightly different direction. With uh, an episode like Purple Testament, did did Rod have some uh, experience where you could see who was not going to come back from the battle? Yeah. it, that episode seems to be one that, you know, like, Solaris's shows, you know, what Barbara and I do and um, almost every other podcast. It, you know, just kind of looking at these unexplained phenomena, it, it, Purple Testament might be one of the best examples of – does something like that really happen? Is that document like how do you explain something uh, like that? I think so many late night shows all go back to some of these themes that Rod explored originally in the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and that that episode again, just so people know what we're talking about, the Purple Testament is a, an episode that's set in in Lady in the Philippines during World War II, and this was that's that's where Rod was, you know, that's where Rod saw combat during World War II it was in Lady in the Philippines, and and this is the episode where he actually did get autobiographical and set it exactly you know where he was, and at the beginning of the episode, the the you know the one character comes back from a mission and where four men have been killed and he shows his commanding or commanding officer uh, a list that he wrote before the before they went out on the mission and on the list he has the names 
Hibbard, Morgan, Horton, and Levy. Those are the four names that he had written down, and those are the four guys that died, and, and he wrote that list before they went out. And uh, those names were Rod's war buddies. Those are guys that, that did get killed in action in Rod's, Rod's unit, um, Rod's regiment. So, so he used their names for these characters uh, to commemorate them, to, you, know, to, uh, you know, to honor them, really. And so, you know, being able to know who's not going to make it back, I mean, that's, that's again, just kind of a, one of those classic kind of what-if concepts. When you're, first of all, Rod experienced so much death in, during, during the war and saw so many guys die. Um, as a writer, I mean, it's not a huge leap to say, you know, what if? What if I could have saw that, that, that he was the one that wasn't going to make it back? What if I knew that this guy was not going to make it back? And that's, you know, so that, that's a jumping off point for, for a great story. And, and that's, that's where he went with it. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, w- while flipping through e- your book, um, as the f- first season was coming to an end, um, you know, the production team wanted to have Orson Welles as the voiceover yeah that was an idea that was an idea at least that was quoted uh, by the <laughs> network for sure uh and and i and that's right i'm glad i was able to clarify that because you know that's another semi semi myth about um about the twilight zone there's always been talk about uh that this network wanted orson wells to begin with that he was their first choice as narrator and that wasn't really the case right um, Rod kind of Rod got the job, you know, as narrator, and he wanted the job as narrator. But it was after the first season that they decided, why don't we get somebody on screen? Because Rod was not on screen in the first season; he was off screen. And they said, why don't we get somebody on screen? And somebody, you know, suggested Orson Welles, and and you know, they thought, yeah, that's a great idea. And and I, I've said this before. I you know, I know that Rod was scheduled to go fly to London and meet with Orson Welles, and I. I wasn't able to determine if that actually happened, if he actually followed through with that. But long story short is that it just didn't happen. They weren't, I don't even know if they got into negotiations with Orson Welles because he would have wanted significant money to do it. And they were already trying to cut the budget. CBS was, was not, you know, not trying to expand the budget, that's for sure. And Rod really wanted the job. So Rod got the job to be the on-screen narrator in season two. And then... <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting aspect that uh, didn't happen, but uh, you can't... It would be fascinating to see what the show would have been like with Orson uh, being on camera, but raw... It's just, you know, his... Um, Rod's appearance on uh, after season two started, you know, just sitting there, you know, having the burning cigarette in his hand and his own voice and wearing the suit. To imagine it in any other way at this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. Without him, yeah. 
it, you know, it's just uh, it's just all, all part of the collaborative process, and things just don't work out. But uh, uh, the legacy, seeing Rod over those few seasons, <laughs> that I, it, it's just um, you know, major part of uh, Americana TV. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, he was a, his presence. His presence was, and, and he was. He became iconic. It became a, you know, he was a gigantic part of of the show. Yeah, um, hopefully, people will go on uh, look at Amazon after the show's over. But what are some of the aspects of your biography that might be a little bit different from Mark Zickrey's uh, book, uh, Martin Graham's, uh, you know, The Twilight Zone, uh, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic? Um Mark Dewisiak's "Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone." Uh, 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 what are uh, you? Know, what's a little uh, on your book that distinguishes it from others? Well, it's um, the first thing is that you know my book is actually the first book that that actually covered Rod Sterling's entire career. You know, in and out of the Twilight Zone all the way through from his very first show to his last show on a show-by-show and a series-by-series basis. You know, no other book has done that before. Uh, Mark Zickrey's book covered the Twilight Zone in that fashion, covered every single episode of the Twilight Zone in detail, and that was the book. Um, Scott Skelton and Jim Benson wrote a terrific night gallery book that covers every single night gallery episode in detail, and that's, that's the book. My book covers everything that Rod Sterling ever wrote from, from 1950 to 1975. So it's, it's all of his original, all of his initial television series from Craft Theater, Playhouse 90, uh, the United States Steel Hour, uh, you know, uh, uh, all, you know, all of the Lux Video Theater, all of these series, every single episode that Rod Sterling wrote, I write about in some detail and all the way through the Twilight Zone, through Night Gallery, and to the end, and including his feature films, and even some of his radio work, uh, a lot of his radio work, actually. So it's, 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 a, it's a complete uh, look at Rod Sterling's uh, body of work. It's the first truly complete uh, uh, look at, the body, at his body of work. So that's, that's the first thing. And the second is that it's, it's, you know, it's not uh, strictly a biography. It has biographical aspects to it. And it's the same way that Mark Zippers is not really a biography. It's a, it's a kind of a biography of the Twilight Zone, I guess, but it's not really a sterling biography. And, and mine isn't either. Mine, mine is it has, it has starts with biography, the first couple chapters of biography, and then it gets in the biography at the end, and then it's sprinkled through the middle. But it's, but it's part biography, and it's part reference guide to all of this work, and then it's part uh, analysis. So I, I dig deep, I think, into a lot of different the themes that Rod was dealing with, again, in and out of the Twilight Zone, a lot of out of the Twilight Zone, uh, you know, those themes that came up over and over again in Rod Serling's work. And, uh, you know, you know the, the, 
the yeah the, the general literary themes, uh, so to speak, uh, that that Rob was dealing with. So that that kind of I think sets it apart from from some of the other books that you mentioned. Okay, Solaris. Well, yeah, I have a question here. So so looking at your book and and certainly writing the forward on the book. First of all, I was curious as to how you all connected. Did she reach out to you, or did you reach out to her initially? I reached out to her. Um, she, uh, you know, I I read her book, and I had started writing my book when I read her book, and she was doing a, a an appearance, um, a reading, and uh, it wasn't even really reading. Actually, it was it was a, a really interesting appearance. She was uh, going to be somewhere in New York City. Uh, now I forget the name of the place, but there was a theater group, a small theater group called Food for Thought Productions or Food for Thought Theater, and they were going to do a dramatic reading of an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Masks. And mm. Fritz Weaver, the late Fritz Weaver, was going to be, going to be in it, uh, as well as some, you know, some other, other actors, obviously. And she was going to play the Rod Serling part. She was going to do the, uh, the introduction and the, out, uh, the, you know, the outgoing narration. And, and so I went to see her. And, and when I went to see her, I had the outline for my book uh, because I had already really done a detailed outline of it because I, I really had a, a clear idea of what I wanted this book to be. And, and I had no idea how she would react to it. I, I, I just took, it, took a chance and I said, you know, hey, you know, this is what I want to do. And she uh, she called me the next day, the very next day, and said, "This is this is wonderful. Please do this. Please don't you know don't let it go. I really would I would love to see this." And I, I think what what intrigued her was that fact that I was addressing Rod's entire body of work and not just the Twilight Zone. And so she uh, she was instrumental just by giving me the the push, you know, just by giving me the stamp of approval. I said, "Okay, well, I guess I really do have to do this now." <laughs> and uh, that's and, awesome. And I, yeah. yeah, and then she agreed to, then she agreed to write the forward, so it was uh, it was great all the way around. <laughs> yep, that's nice to have that kind of a blessing. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, um, Nick, when you were you know, watching all the night gallery episodes to incorporate in, into your book. Um, what are some effects of that uh, series that revealed uh, where Rod was going when in the last what about five years of his life? Yeah, well, Night Gallery, you know, Night Gallery is an, is an interesting story, you know, because Night Gallery, is, as most people know, Rod Sterling was not happy with Night Gallery, and it was, it was the most frustrating experience of his career. He was, uh, he really did not get along with the producer of Night Gallery, a man by the name of Jack Laird, and it was just one of those things where they just they just didn't see eye to eye on anything, and it, and it was like from day one they just they just did not get along personally or or professionally, and it's, and it's the one person that Rod Sterling didn't get along with. I mean, it was in his whole career, I mean, he Rod Sterling got along with everybody, but he just couldn't get along with Jack Laird, and so um, so it was a very frustrating experience for Rod. But he ended up, you know, Night Gallery started as it can really be traced back to a book that Rod Sterling wrote called The Season to Be Wary, 
And The Season to Be Wary was the first book that Rod Sterling wrote that was original prose fiction, meaning these were original stories that were not adapted from his own Twilight Zone scripts or anything like that. These were long, short stories that were original stories. And two of those stories he he then adapted into the pilot for the Night Gallery movie. So the Night Gallery movie aired in 1969. It was three stories. Two of them came from that book plus one, one other one. And it was a huge hit. The Night Gallery pilot movie was a huge hit ratings-wise, and almost immediately they started talking about a series. And, and Rod did not demand creative control on Night Gallery. He, um, he, had, he gave lots of reasons over the years why he didn't request creative control of the series, and, and, and some of them weren't necessarily true. And, but what I, what I say in the book is that I think he, he didn't really want creative control because he, just, he, he was an older guy. He didn't want an older guy, a lot younger than I am. But, but at that point, he had been through working 12 hours a day on the Twilight Zone. He did not want that kind of work schedule again. So I think he kind of wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. He wanted his name on the show. It's Rod Sterling's Night Gallery, and he would do most of the writing for it. And that was by agreement with the, with the, with the network. They wanted, they wanted him to do most of the writing for it. But he was not going to be like he was with Twilight Zone, where he was involved in hiring the actors and and you know having having his eye on editing and and uh, the set product, set design, and all that kind of stuff. Where Twilight Zone, he was involved in everything, and he did not want that kind of workload. But unfortunately, he got unlucky in the case that they hired a producer to do that work, and he just happened to not get along with this producer, Jack Laird. So, so, um, so. I, I hope I make the point in the book that Rod wrote a lot of really great stuff for Night Gallery. I think he, he wrote, some, I think some of his best work is in Night Gallery. A couple of scripts I think are just downright brilliant. And he ended up writing 38 of the 99 Night Gallery segments. But he walked away from that show very, very disappointed and frustrated with the whole, with the whole experience. Okay. It, Nick, you were just mentioning... Um, you know, uh, Rod had a collection of original short stories that that's a couple for uh, Night Gallery episodes. Um, also, in your book, you, you uh, wrote that Mark Olshaker was saw the uh, manuscript for a novel, but it somewhere it just disappeared. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is there an update on that? Did Anne find it in a shoebox or <laughs> has it ever surfaced? No, but, uh, but it is on my, <laughs> it's on my, you know, holy grail list of things I will find um, because, you know, Rod, Rod never published a novel. He never published a novel in his, in his, in his life. And uh, by, from my research, he actually probably wrote two. Uh, one is the one you're mentioning, and it was a novel. It was really a novelization of A Storm in Summer, which was an episode of Hallmark Hall of Fame that he had written. And uh, Storm in Summer was a critically acclaimed episode of Hallmark Hall of Fame, won all sorts of awards. And Rod adapted it into a novel, and Mark Oldshaker mentions, "Yeah, I saw the manuscripts, and he showed me this, you know, this novel, and it just has not shown up anywhere." And 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 I I really really intend to find it. And the other one 
is there there were plenty of news reports at the time that said he was he had finished uh well they said he finished a novel called called X Number of Days. That's that's the other novel. And as you may know, Rod dictated everything that he did. He he would he dictated his writing. That was just a very, very strange way to work, but he dictated everything. And we do have a lot of those dicta belt recordings now they exist. So um X number of days is uh, it exists somewhere, whether it be in belt form or something, but it does exist, and that's that's one that I think we we will find, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. Okay, well, that's a uh, fascinating story. And speaking of other lost uh, manuscripts, um, I never heard about. Doomsday Flight. Uh, what was that series? Uh, that that was not a series. What that was that was a uh, a television movie, and it did air. It, um, the Doomsday Flight was a uh, a made-for-TV movie, and again, big ratings hit. It was one of the first really made-for-TV movies, and uh, got great ratings. Was repeated uh, a bunch of times, and unfortunately. It, it was about um, the plot of the Doomsday Flight was that it's about a, a terrorist threat to an airline. Uh, a, a terrorist calls the airline and says that he had planted a bomb on the airplane. And the gimmick in it is that the bomb is, is a, they call it an aerodyne bomb, and it's set for air pressure. And it was, it was set to uh, be activated at the time the, the plane took off, and it's set to go off when the plane begins its landing and, and gets underneath 5,000 feet. So once the, once the plane gets under 5,000 feet, it's going to blow up. That's the, the, uh, the gimmick to it. So after this movie aired, there were a spate of bomb threats to airlines. They thought inspired by this movie. Uh, lunatics calling up airlines saying they planted an airline bomb on flight. And, and a lot of airlines had to actually, they paid some demands to these to people to tell them where the where the bomb was, and in every instance, there was no bomb, but they still, you know, they couldn't take that chance, obviously. So, so the FAA, you know, the uh, Federal Aviation, uh, Aviation or whatever it is, they, they called the networks and demanded that they never show this movie again. So it was never, so it was repeated, uh, you know, basically like one, like one or two times, and then they, they, they stopped airing it because they were too many uh, copycat uh, threats, and Rod regretted regretted it to you know like like hell he regretted having written it you know but you know it wasn't, it wasn't his fault that there he said you know i i can't take uh i can't take credit for the amount of idiots out there around now the knuckleheads you know but he did feel bad that uh, he caused kind of a kind of a problem now we need uh mark and john to pro- profile those people to <laughs> yeah act. yeah Act normally. It's just a TV show. Jeez. Okay, calm down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they, uh, yeah, they took it, took it, uh, took it to heart. Apparently. Okay, so, so Larry, so I'm, I'm about done with my uh, rant. Uh, <laughs> you, you have a okay. <laughs> Well, uh, so I'm looking at the, the Twilight Zone movie in a sense. I've heard of you know a lot of bad mojo associated with the film connected to the accidents that happened. What is your impression of that, the movie itself? The, the final product of the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It was. Uh, I you know I was I was 
12 years old when when the movie came out, maybe 13, and I and I liked it. I, I liked it a lot when it came out, mm-hmm. and I and we actually screened it at one of the Sterling Fests, and you know to see it again on the big screen again. I still kind of like it. I I it's not a great movie by any stretch. Um, and it's not. It has its moments. The, it has its moments, and it's not quite the Twilight Zone. You know, it's just it just not. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite get the get the the feel. It didn't quite get the tone of the Twilight Zone, but. But there's, it has its moments, and I think that, uh, you know, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, I think, was done very, very well. I, I mean, look out, actress tremendous. I mean, with, especially with the job he had to do. I mean, they basically said, hey, you know, start as a raving lunatic and, and, and continue as a raving be, be an even more raving lunatic by the end of the episode, the end of the story. You know, so, I mean, he was just fantastic, I think. Uh, so, so you know, it has its moments, and I, I kind of like it. But they, they, it definitely was a swing and a miss as far as really capturing the spirit of, of, of the series. I agree. Just curious. Mark. Yeah, I, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, that came out when I was in uh, about high school, and I. I had an overall good good impression of the movie. I was seeing Dan Aykroyd in it, the Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. Uh, I, I thought it was well done. Yeah, it, 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 it had yeah, it had its moments. It really did. Yeah, um, I think people have expectations, though. You know, considering to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, uh, it, um, it, uh, the um, oh, t- how do I how do I forget the title of uh, uh, the r- remake of Bill well, being the life. monster? Yeah, it's a good life. Yeah, yeah, it's a good. I I I I can't believe I uh. Forgot that uh, title, um, but um, it, it, yeah, that was uh, it. Kind of pushed the envelope a little bit with uh, uh, it, it, yeah, the fantasy ending, uh, but there's Bill just really seemed to be almost like the only person that could almost uh, uh, pull that off and, and make it work. Uh, there's just something about Bill's face well, yeah. that, where you can't believe he's a monster and you, know, you slowly get pulled into <laughs> what he's doing. But Bill was just great. At creating one of the classic uh, monsters in TV history, Bill Mooney was a, a, a terrific styled actor. I mean, there's just there's no no two ways about it. He he was great. He was in, he starred in three Twilight Zone episodes, and he was great in that in that one. In all three, uh, but but that mm-hmm. one particularly, that, that's probably the most memorable one, even though the other two are very good. 
yeah, he was he was great. And I, the kid, um, the kid in the movie, Jeremy Licht was his name. He he was he was fine. He, there was no, I don't think there was anything wrong with him. But it certainly was a different story that they decided to tell with that character. I think, and and it was uh, it was different. You know, it was it was different, and it was um, you know, it was an interesting take on the character. But I don't think it it certainly wasn't the Bill Mooney character. It was, it was a different it was a different character. He had different different aspects to him. But, um, you know, Bill, you know, when we did this show a couple years ago, uh, two or three years ago, um, <laughs> we just had a uh, short time with him. But, he, yeah, there's, you know, he, he got to work on an Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. And, and the, you know, three Twilight Zone episodes and going into Lost in Space. And I, he, I, I, the heck of a good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, he's produced, uh, one of the producers of Ancient Aliens now. Um, you know, he's had a small role in Papillon. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, being part of Barnes and Barnes singing fish heads. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's one of those uh, Doctor Demento classics. But um, it, with um, yeah, Bill. Yeah, just having uh, such a outstanding uh, TV career as well as uh, you know a music career. Um, how how many uh, and all that was sixty years ago. How how many? Um, Actors and actresses are left uh, from the original series. It's a good question, and I know that there there are websites that you can find that have the list of, of the actual actors that are alive, but not too many. I mean, uh, really, not too many. Um, Bill obviously is still with us. Um, Believe it or not, Earl Ham uh, not Earl, uh, Earl Holloman, who starred in the very first episode, where is everybody? He just turned ninety five, I believe, um, a few months ago. He's wow. still with us. Yeah. Uh and they're you know, obviously a lot of the children actors, you know, a bunch of them are still are still still with us. So uh yes, yes there's there's a, a bunch but uh, but I mean Shatner, Shatner's still with us, George Decay. Uh, too, but but the, the bulk. I mean, most of them obviously are gone. Which I'm not sure that yeah, that that's over 60 years now. Uh, so so yeah, most most of the actors are are gone at this point. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, you know, just just to wonder, you know, who's left from that show? But yeah, it, it's almost like. You become pulled into the Twilight Zone where 
you can't believe that it's you know, first aired a little over 60 years ago. It it, it it just seems so timeless that um, it doesn't seem it, it, like 60, yeah, it, 60 it, years have passed. You know, in a lot of ways, it doesn't. And, and you know, one of the um, interesting things is that I find if you if you watch the the '80s Twilight Zone, you know the one that came out mm-hmm. in '85, that one looks yep. more dated to me than the original Twilight Zone does. So if you try to watch that yeah. now, it, it's really really dated looking. Whereas the original Twilight Zone, even in black and white, has this timeless quality to it. Um, yeah. Plus, thankfully, films are so pristine. You know, since they've done the Blu-rays and and the films were were. Um, preserved well and everything. It really just looks beautiful. I mean, the cinematography and everything else. But, but yeah, so it's, 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 it is aged. Most of the Twilight Zone episodes have aged very, very well. So what's your favorite episode? I, you know, it, the, it, it, most people probably tell you that, you know, it depends on the day that you ask them. But uh, yeah. I ended up, you know, I ended up settling on on walking distance. I, I always give that as my answer. I I think it probably is my favorite. I always loved it. I even loved it when I was a kid. The theme of you know going back to your youth was was even when I was a kid. I got it. You know, it wasn't like I had that kind of nostalgia at the time. But I, but Rod made me get it. I, I understood what this character was yearning for and everything. So I always loved that episode. Uh, and but just as I've gotten older, I have loved it even more. So, so walking distance is probably my favorite. I can tell you, I for sure uh, my top, my top three would be walking distance, Fire of the Beholder, and Monsters of Do on Maple Street. That that would be my top three, and I think I could probably Maple Street and 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 walking distance could probably just kind of duke it out. You know, that's about it. But those would be my two my two top ones. How about you, Solaris? Oh, gosh. Well, I like Time Enough at Last. That was a real good one. And I like The Invaders. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's, the Night Call was a good one, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, I like that one. So, yeah, I guess it depends. And, you know, one thing I did want to make a mention of, too, and I, we probably discussed this on and off in past shows, but I love the contrast of the black and white. And to me, the dramatic energies associated with that uh, film just looks really nice in the series itself. That's one thing I really used to enjoy was the black and white drama. Just the lighting. Everything looked really good. I completely agree. That's my completely comment. Agree. Yeah, the black the black and white adds adds such a dimension to the to the series. It's just it's the thing that's missing from all of these all of these remakes is that they're not in black and white and they're just not it doesn't have the same feel to it. Mhm. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I think we all grew up with them. It's interesting, like I said, there's timelessness with it. And I'm older than both of you probably. So, uh, yeah, I just, I love the series. I never get tired of watching it. I remember they had the marathons, usually at the first of the year. And yep. we'd always sit there and watch. <laughs> and by the time the marathon's over, the whole the whole house has changed and morphed into some kind of multidimensional space. But, yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting. That's fun. Yeah. There's uh, um, when you know you've done your you know, presentations or you know, talk with other 
uh, people at the conferences. Um, it, it's, it seems like the Mike Wallace interview frequently comes up, and, and you can still find that on YouTube. Um, That was uh, uh, Rod seemed that he he was uh, pretty sure that this was uh, the Twilight Zone was going to be a hit, and you know Mike was like uh, um, science fiction fantasy for TV. Uh, What are you thinking? And Yeah, you could. You know, Rod just seemed like he was really sure of the apprenticeship that he put in with the Playhouse ninety and moving into this uh, new project, the Twilight Zone. That that he 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 just knew that this was going to work. I, I think he was confident that it would be good. You know, he was confident that it would be, it would be quality. And he, he was yeah. probably confident in that because he knew how much effort he was putting into it and that he was going to put into it. He, he wasn't going to let it be less than that. If, if it was going to fail, it was going to fail uh, for some other reason, not for the reason that it wasn't, just wasn't good, you know. So, so he was confident in that. And Mike Wallace uh, – you know, I, I, I'd give him a break. I, I know a lot of people kind of think that he was being snarky or he was a little, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know, yeah, being snarky or something. But I, I think Mike Wallace was, Mike Wallace was the, uh, at the time, had the, that was the prevailing wisdom. The prevailing wisdom was that Rod Sung was out of his mind. You know, he's leaving, he's leaving live, dramatic, you know, 90-minute quality, prestigious dramas for a 30-minute film science fiction show that they thought was going to be for eight-year-olds, you know? And they thought, you know, what, what is this guy doing, you know? So when, when Mike Wallace says, uh, says, well, so I guess that means you've given up on writing anything important for television. <laughs> and Sterling says, uh, well, um, well, it kind of depends on your definition of important, you know? I mean, you know, so he was like, but that that was the prevailing wisdom. People thought that was it wasn't going to be important. It might be, but it wasn't going to be important. And sixty years later, we're sitting here telling you how important it was. It was tremendously important. Yeah, and um, you know, since we you just did bring up uh, the Playhouse ninety and. I like the episode with uh, the, the the man in the funny suit with Ed Wynn and uh, Rod would bring him back for uh, one for the angels. Uh, uh, that was <clears throat> the uh, second episode. Is that right? It was one of the uh, very yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh, I knew it was at least uh, very early on in the series. Um, you know, the, the, there was something about Ed that you just really like him as uh, the, yeah. you know, the characters yeah. he played. He's very believable. He. he 
uh, he just has that face that just kind of pulls you into the story he's he's in. And his uh, son was uh, uh, Keenan was a very respectable actor as well. Yeah, and he starred in uh, a couple of flowers and episodes himself. Uh, World of His Own was one, and I think was he in, was he in the second one? I, I, hmm. I know he was in a World of His Own. I was starred in that one, but yeah, maybe it was just the one. But but he was in a lot of uh, selling things, other things that Sterling wrote. Yeah, I and yeah. Yeah, Edwin, Murray Edwin, Ab- Yeah, I think Edwin had that. He had a he had a sympathetic quality to 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 uh, you know to his face. You know, he he did. He had that. He had that. Um, he had the quality that made you want to root for him and made made you think he was maybe the underdog in whatever he was doing. You know, mm-hmm. um, that certainly that certainly came through in, in Reckoning for Heavyweight. Reckoning for Heavyweight was you know Playoffs ninety. It was the second episode of Playoffs ninety, and and uh, he co-starred in that with his son uh, Keenan Wynn and, and and Jack Palance, and he plays uh, the boxer's trainer, and it's really the Edwin character that kind of voices the audience's uh, impression of, of the Jack Palance character when, you know, you know, does everybody have to, you know, take it out on this guy? Does everybody have to take a piece of this guy, you know? And, 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 and he, and he, and he did it brilliantly. He did. I mean, he, he got rave reviews for his performance and, and uh, yeah, and, and pulled it off. Solaris, do you have a question? Oh, I always have a question. <laughs> oh, that's the best question. Uh, let's see here. So, so I was going to ask you, if, if there was anything you could add to Rod Serling's work, would it, what would it be? Well, uh, you know, Rod Serling had two, two really um, unrealized dreams. You know, two things that he really wanted to accomplish in his life that he didn't get to accomplish. The first is the big one. That's, that's to write a, to get a Broadway play produced, to get a, play produced on Broadway and he did he did not do that he wrote a couple of Broadway plays um, actually probably three or four and they were all optioned and they had you know various you know various wranglings and they just never made it to the stage and after he died Requiem for Heavyweight did make it to Broadway it was uh it, it uh came to Broadway with starring John Lithgow uh, <laughs> believe it or not and um, unfortunately, it bombed. It got terrible reviews, and it, it closed after less than a week. But well, you know, during his life, during his lifetime, he didn't make it to Broadway. And I think I, w- I would love to have given him that to have him see his name on, on a Broadway, for, you know, for uh, saying. Uh, but that's one. And the other, the other, uh, you know, you know, dream he had was to write a to publish a novel, to publish a good novel. And as we said before, I, you know, he probably did write a couple, but. They just never, uh, they were never published, and maybe we'll be able to find one of those and and get it out there because that that would be nice. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, and and in, in your book, you uh, yeah do have um, synopsis of um, the Twilight Zone episodes in my gallery that. Uh, where Rod had a hand in in those um, 
the writing. Um, but you know, one night gallery episode. Um, I I really enjoyed I, just the couple times I've seen it was the uh, the boy who predicted earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you remind us about uh, uh, that. I, I, that was just something really different. Yeah, that was uh, it. Was it was based on a short story? Rod adapted it from a short story, and it starred Clint Howard, uh, Ron Howard's brother. And Clint Howard is another one of those actors who showed up on a whole lot of things back then, and he plays a kid, I uh, forget how old he's supposed to be in the episode, but a kid who can predict the future, and uh, he proves it. He proves that he's able to predict the future in, in certain ways, and a local TV station puts him on the air and makes him a star, and he goes on, on TV and predicts the future, and it's usually things that, you know, he predicted uh, you know, when uh, there was a little girl who was lost in, the, lost in the mountains, and he predicted where they would find her, and how she would, and she would be okay, she was alive, and, and they found her, and uh, you know, different different predictions come true, and and eventually he has this vision of the sun exploding, uh, the sun exploding, and 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 all, the end of all life on Earth, and and he decides he's not going to tell anybody that he's gonna he's gonna come up with something else. He's gonna he's gonna tell them something else, and he tells them how you know it's gonna be beautiful, and there's gonna be you know it's gonna be a millennium, and everybody's going to love each other, and and he says them. You know, uh, you know, a different story, and uh, he ends up telling his grandfather and another person who happens to, you know, say, there's, you know, who knew. There's no way that that prediction you just said was that the one you meant to say. And he says, yeah. And he tells them what's going to happen. The sun's going to explode and goes nova. And um, and he says, but you know, at least you know, with the story I told everybody, nobody will be afraid of it, and and they'll be able to handle it. You know, and, and um, yeah, that's 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 a, a terrific episode. It's a that's. That that was the first in the first episodes of the second season of Night Gallery, and it really um, it kind of has a very slow tension to it. That episode it, it doesn't hit you all at once. It, it kind of builds very slowly uh, to the, to that ending, and it, and and then it kicks you in the head with, with that ending. You know, so it's uh, I thought it was very well plotted and and of course very very well written. And since we were just talking about uh, one for the angels, uh, Murray Hamilton returned to, uh, uh, you know, one of Rod's works in uh, the new series Night Gallery, and he he's in um, Doctor Stringfellow's Rejuvenator. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, that one was actually uh, pretty creepy. Um, episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that I mean, Night Gallery in general had more of a creep factor than than Twilight Zone did, you know. So, so yeah, it had it had a little more uh, of a shock value to it, a little more a little more horror and everything. So yeah, and that one that one was was creepy. It was um, yeah, because basically because of the um, uh, you know, because the yeah you know, the ending, uh, you know the you know the, whether the the guy who's selling this rejuvenator that's you know um, you know it's a, it's, it's he's a charlatan. It's not it's not really a rejuvenator, and he ends up being you know haunted by this this ghost that you know uh, 
faces, and it's yeah, it's a it's a creepy episode. It's a, it's a pretty good one too. Yeah, I always like that one. I uh, it's not played as in reruns as often as I'd like, but I uh, when I do see that one, uh, it r- really uh, I really puts the hooks into you. Yeah, Night, Night Gallery occasionally did have that quality to it, yeah, where it, it could hook you and hold you there, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Solaris, do you have, have anything? Yeah, Another I question? Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I still have a bunch <laughs> of questions jotted down. Oh, good. Well. I don't, we'll just kind of uh, tag off on each other here. So, so my question, yeah. uh, first of all, you have the thrillingfest2022.com. So, this is out every year, correct? Yeah, this is going to be our sixth, sixth annual Thrilling Fest. Yes, it's been every year. Okay, excellent. And will you be having signed copies of your book for sale at the event? or? Absolutely. In fact, probably probably every author who's there will have will have signed copies of their books. So Mark Zickery, Ann Serling, myself, Mark Olshaker, yeah, we'll all have we'll, – we will have a small vendor's area, and we'll have those. And we'll also have a – we always have a raffle. So we are going to have a whole bunch of items that will be available uh, by raffle tickets. Uh, including signed checks from Rod Sterling, uh, and um, again signed books from just about every author that's there, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other you know spotlight on DVDs and things like that. So there'll, there'll be a whole bunch of uh, of raffle prizes to get. That's awesome. Well, I'm really happy about this event. So thank you for being part of it and creating this atmosphere. It's wonderful. We we love doing it. It's, it's uh, you know it's um it's a time that we can get all these people together. And 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 speak the same language. You know, it's 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 one of those times where you get a whole bunch of people together who are on exactly the same wavelength about something, and and it really is nice. And um, you know, we do a lot of fun stuff. I and mean, I do I do a Twilight on Jeopardy. We're going to be doing that again this year. Uh, we do, you know, like I said, we do some trivia things. We'll have an you know an hour with Mark Zickery where you can just you know basically Q and A any anything you want to know. Uh, so we do, you know, a lot of different things, presentations, screenings, fun stuff, or scholarly stuff um, for all across the board. It's a really uh, varied event. I think it's well needed right now, too, on the timeline. So, yeah, it sounds great. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, the, yeah there are a lot of church people who go there. I, it, it, it attracts people from um, – such various backgrounds. Yeah, I, I think I think so. Yeah, it's just and, and everyone just from as from different uh, age groups, but it's really uh, a lot of people reminiscing about how Rod or the Twilight Zone really influenced their lives for the better. Hence, you get some people, uh, like ministers being there, uh, authors who um, have a diverse canon but they always coming back to 
their roots, which is watching um, uh, uh, you know, the Twilight Zone or you know, something about Rod from their uh, you know, childhood. It, 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 it's really a great way to learn about someone's legacy. Yeah, that's that is completely the idea. Um, you know, we that's what the Rod Sterling Memorial Foundation is all about. We're about, you know, making you know, preserving this, this man's legacy because he was more than the Twilight Zone and he was more than he was more than just a writer. He was he was uh he was a philosopher, he was a humanitarian, he was right. uh, he was just a good guy and, and we think that the messages that he that pervade his work in and out of the Twilight Zone are worth uh, worth preserving, and that's uh, that's mm-hmm. the theme that the theme that overrides these events. And it, it attracts really uh, qual- quality people. Fam- families are there. Uh, it, it's a really wonderful uh, time, and I. You know, I, I, after be, you know, making the trek a couple times, uh, yeah, uh, up there, giving me like a, a, a new perception. You know, like when I watch in in a little bit, uh, <clears throat> it'll be an episode airing on MeTV. Well, it, it's seeing it more, like you said. That this uh, uh, episode or the, the idea behind the series w- was uh, put together by someone who is basically a philosopher. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and, and I think uh, you know, the the attendees are there to uh, pay homage. It's uh, just duly justified. But um, it's, uh, uh, is Amy's unknown Serling in print now? I believe it's, it's – if you go to, on Amazon, I believe it is available. Um, I, I think so, anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure. But last time I checked, it was, and I and I think it's also I I know it's it's certainly available on you know on Kindle it's, as an ebook. It's certainly available, so um, that's for sure. But I think it's available in print too. Okay, could could, could you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, Amy's uh, book the what she did for to uh, put that book together? Um, well, she Amy Boyle Johnson did a ton of research. I mean, she did as much research as I did uh, into Sterling's work, and she focused on some very specific things, uh, some very unusual things. That's why it's called Unknown Sterling. I mean, she focused on um, – a war games project that that Ross Sterling was was involved in, believe it or not, that he, he was invited by uh, the State Department to to take part in this 
um, simulation of, of war game exercises. And I, I can't say much more than that because I, I mean, it, it would be the same story, and I, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, so I, I couldn't tell you much more about it. But, yeah, something like that or, or um, Sterling's uh, relationship with Ray Bradbury, something that I, I would have loved to have gotten into in my, my book, but I just didn't have the space for um, she she delves into that a little bit. So she has, you know, compared to mine, I mean, it's, 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 it's not everything just short book compared to mine, but you know, compared to mine, it's a, it's a short book, but it, it focuses on very specific things. So it's a uh, it's a great read. It's it's um it's more than worth getting uh getting and taking a look at. It's for this for the for the library. If you want the full picture of that selling, that's one that's one that you should get. Yeah. Um... Amy sat down with Ray Bradbury for like what a weekend. I'm not sure how long did, it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, uh, okay, at least it was for a few hours, and I think that uh, that would have been amazing. Just to hear Ray talk about his philosophies, his career. He was uh, that sci-fi, mid-20th century sci-fi, American sci-fi authors really did leave a lasting legacy and you, know, you mentioned Gene Roddenberry too uh, you know we need to bring him in the mix as well what uh, kind of relationship did he and Rod have well uh, Roddenberry and Sterling were friends uh, they they mm-hmm. were friends they, they knew each other for, uh, pretty well and uh, Gene Roddenberry gave one of the eulogies to Sterling at his funeral in California. Um, so they knew each other well enough for Gene Roddenberry to do that, and he uh, wrote a beautiful eulogy to Sterling that I, I quote in my book. Uh, so they, yeah, they, they were friends, and I think that uh, Roddenberry acknowledged the influence of Twilight Zone and Rod Sterling on Star Trek in terms of the way it approached social issues. I mean, Star Trek was dealing with some of the same issues that Rod Sterling was dealing with in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of censorship, in terms of trying to address social issues. And it used the same tactic of saying, you know, we're going to set this on an alien planet and, you know, we may, we can get away with it in this way. And, and uh, I think that Rod Sterling, you know, opened that door for Star Trek and, and, and knocked down some doors for Star Trek and everything else that came afterwards. And, and I think Gene Roddenberry acknowledged that. So, so they were, he was an admirer of Sterling and they were, and they were friends. And, uh, and when you were on, uh, doing Richard's show the other night, um, <laughs> you were talking about, uh, some of the props, actually came from like forbidden planets uh, so there's more of like all that uh, like the uh, robot in um uh, the one with the yeah the uh one where the uh daughter was always waiting on her husband 
and the robot shows up at the end. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's so many of those. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, Robbie. Um, Robbie Robot, yeah. But, yeah, right. Yeah, the... Um, that classic 1950s uh, sci-fi stuff, uh, uh, movies also blended into uh, the Twilight Zone and later episodes. But there's something seems like it it just became like one of those uh, touchstones um, for later authors with all that really interesting sci-fi, uh, the, the whole sci-fi genre from the, uh, you know, like the latter half of the 50s and uh, to the start of the Twilight Zone into the uh, later 60s. It, it, it's uh, really a, a fascinating uh, creative period. Yes, because I mean, what what you were what you're talking about is is and, and Rod said this is that you know he would say that you know when they started the Twilight Zone you know 1959 the beauty you know the, the advantage they had was there was this hundred year history of science fiction in the print in the in the written form you know short stories mm-hmm. and novels that, that that hadn't been filmed that had not been adapted to the to the new medium television or or or, or feature films. So they had this wealth of a backlog of stories and, and ideas and everything else that they could now introduce to this new generation through television. I mean, television had just, you know, really started nine years earlier, you know, then the Twilight started, they came on. So, so it was a, it was a new, you know, is is a new medium to showcase this, this, this genre. And then, so, and then as the technology got a little bit better, then you got, you know, you got Star Trek. And then, you know, so, so this was a, a period where the, the medium of television was growing up and getting more sophisticated and it was able to tackle uh, these stories that had been in existence for, you know, for ages, really. Yeah, that's a good point. I, 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 yeah, that, that just uh, astonishes me. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but it, it, it's not to be an overlooked American Renaissance. I really like it. You know, I just really learned a lot from the various discussions with you and the Marks Martin. <laughs> It's, it's an interesting period. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, and a lot of very uh, fascinating uh, people you have at the uh, lined up to be speakers uh, this year. Um, let's see. Uh, what else? Ha- uh, do we need to say about the conference? Uh, well, just uh, if I can, you know, I'll give the, the website again. It's Sterling Fest 202022, 2022.com. 
And I would like to mention again that that, you know, that cocktail party that we're having on the Friday night begins at 5 o'clock, and that's a separate, a separate event and a separate ticket. So you'll see if you go to SerlingFest2022.com, there's actually two different events. There's SerlingFest, and you'll, you'll be clear. And then there's, there is the cocktail party. And the cocktail party, like I said, is going to specifically be uh, geared towards we're raising funds to get that statue of Rob Sterling done. And, and uh, Donna Lopardo, the assemblywoman who put this together for us, was able to get us um, most of the way there, <laughs> most of the way to getting the statue done. And this is going to help us kind of pass the finish line of getting that done. Because this is something that the foundation has wanted to do for a really long time. And it's something that's way, way, way overdue. I mean, there are statues of everybody everywhere. I mean, you go into any city, you're going to find a statue of, you know, Mark Twain or, or, or Edgar Allan Poe or, or, you know, writers, athletes, politicians, mm-hmm. military people. I mean, there's no reason in the world that there shouldn't be a statue of Rod Sterling in Binghamton. It was, you know, his hometown. It is their most famous residence. And he loved the place, you know, so, so it's, um, it's long overdue and, and we're almost certainly going to get it done. And it would probably be uh, the unveiling would be sometime late next year because it's going to take about a year to actually build the statue and get it get it done and everything. But so probably late next year for Sterling Fest 2023, you know that may be the main attraction is, is unveiling that that statue. And we also do have some other uh, announcements to make that are kind of um, kind of hush hush that that we'll be announcing on that that August 12th during the cocktail party. That if people want to come down and get there get the the scoop. That would be where where to do it because there is um, at least one other pretty exciting announcement that we're going to be making uh, that night. Okay, and if um, people are in the area for uh, the August twelfth, uh, thirteenth, and fourteenth, um, Rod's grave is in the region. Um, how, how far of a drive is it to um, it's, pay respects? Um, it's, yeah, it's in Interlaken, uh, and it's uh, it's about less than an hour, less than an hour, maybe between 45 minutes and an hour, something like that. So it's not okay. you know, around the corner, but it's not a bad drive. And, um, yeah, so that is, that is there. It's, uh, uh, and it's I believe the cemetery is is. Interlake and Cemetery. I think it's something like that. So yeah, don't quote me on that. But but yes, yeah, so it's not not that far. And uh, yeah, and there are those other sites that you could see as well that are um, you know that are around town in Binghamton. Okay. Um, all right. You know, Solaris, do you have anything to plug your books, upcoming guests for your show? Oh, I'm good. No worries on that one. I just want to thank you again, uh, Mark. This has been fun. Uh, thanks for letting me co-host, and a pleasure to connect with you again, Nick. I hopefully I get you back on Hyperspace at some point. This has been an excellent I, I, uh, interview. I hope so. It's great, great talking with you, Forrest. Yeah, you too. And I like the you have the cost of the tickets are very reasonable, by the way. So it looks really nice. Website. Thanks. I, I I think so. Yeah, we try to make it reasonable, and 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 it is a it is a kind of an intimate. Thing. It's not. I, I always tell people it's not. You know, there's not going to be ten thousand people there. You know, it's not. It's not a huge convention. So when you come, you know, you'll be able to to uh, to mingle and and really talk to people. It's a really more much more intimate experience than most conventions that you'd probably go to. Yeah, sounds great. I'd go out there. I have to get my way over here. I'm in Colorado right now. 
Yeah, great. <laughs> okay, and, and uh, Nick, where can people uh, get a copy of your uh, very uh, worthy biography? Uh, well, the book is, is Rod Sterling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. And you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere books are sold, you can, you can get it. If you happen to want a signed copy, I do have uh, I do have some available, and probably the best bet is to grab me through Facebook. If you just you know look up Nick Parisi on Facebook and send me a message, and I'll I'll be happy to set you up with that, and I can uh, I can send you out a signed copy. Otherwise, come to Sterling Fest, and I'll certainly get you a signed copy there. And and uh, the book actually is going to be going to be coming out in paperback next year. So. Uh, so if you want a hardcover, that would probably be the best time to get it. Uh, so it is available in hardcover, but it will be released in, in paperback next year, and I'm looking forward to that. But um, if you want a hardcover, it uh, might not be available forever. Okay. Well, it, it's a, uh, a very uh, – you did a great job. It's a very insightful uh, book. Uh, it's a well done biography. Um the accolades you got for it are certainly deserving. So um Okay, I think I think we're I appreciate uh, it. It was, it's, it was great to talk to you as always. And I wish you could make it to make it to Sterling Fest. I'm sure you'll come back again some sometime. Oh yeah, uh I I I have I have it on my list of things to do. Uh, it, I I really enjoy uh, going up there. Um, yeah, we're we have about uh, a minute or so left. Uh, you know, we can uh, wrap it now, or if unless someone has something to say. But uh, I I just want to thank both of you for making this a terrific show. I I had a great time. I'm sure the Listeners learned a lot about uh, Twilight's own history, uh, Rod's legacy, and um, go to Serling Fest or, or get Nick's book, and you'll, you'll be re- rewarded. Um, so I just want, want to thank you again, and I'll, I will see everyone next Tuesday, and Barbara has a great show lined up on Monday. So thanks again, everyone. See see you next week. Thank you.